As a matter of fact, you can know that the Lord is always with you. He didn't save you and then send you out on your own to figure this Christian life out by yourself. He saves you and promises that He will be with you. He will never forsake you. Excellence. By which He has granted us to His, He has granted us to His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, please open your word to us today. Give us your message to encourage this church to press on and, and continue this grace that you've given us. Please give me wisdom to speak your words in truth. Amen. <clears throat> so today is a real blessing for me, um, kind of going back to last Sunday. Um, after the message, uh, I had to cut out after fellowship and wasn't able to stay. And I went home and was working on uh, one of our cars, and Kendra was sitting up there with me, and we were talking about Jim's message, and we were both very encouraged and stirred up to like find ways to serve and like how can we be useful and not, you know, ignore these these giftings and opportunities that the Lord has given us. And in a conversation, I told Kendra, you know, I, I really feel like I want to preach again, like like I want to serve the church in some way and be an encouragement. And, uh, last Sunday's message was so encouraging. I, I want to do that. I want to bring encouragement to the church. And I feel like the Lord was listening in on our conversation because it was like a day or two days later that Raymond mentioned in the men's group chat that, that we've got speakers lined up from GCC for the rest of the month, but we don't have anybody to cover this Sunday. And in that moment, I had kind of like a little panic attack. Like, oh, Lord, like I, I meant like I kind of wanted to do it in the future, but this is next Sunday. And... Uh, I didn't have a fear that the Lord wouldn't provide someone to, to preach. I, I knew that if I didn't say anything, somebody else would volunteer, somebody would show up. The Lord always provides for his church. But this was like the Lord like almost pushing me, like, 
okay, if you're, if you're wanting to, 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 to do what you said, then you have to volunteer now. So I messaged Raymond, I was like, I can do it, you know. And, and then immediately after I messaged Raymond, I had a little panic attack, because I was like, I don't have anything prepared, I haven't been studying anything specific, and I'm working nights, I don't have any like three weekends before Sunday, like what am I gonna do? And just in that moment, I was like, Lord, I'm, I'm trusting that this is from you and you're gonna be the one to provide. And, and I don't think that trust was in vain. I think the Lord did provide. This is not my wisdom or, or my affluence, but this is just me trusting that the Lord will provide an encouraging message for his church. So um, that's what I wanna do. I wanna dive into our text and, and draw out what I believe is an encouraging message for, for the Lord's church. Um, starting in verse one, uh, the first half of verse one, Simon, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the second letter from Peter, we see a, a very older and mature and humble Peter. I'm not saying that in his first letter he was immature, but you guys are, are all familiar with Peter and his immaturities throughout scripture. You know, he was the one that boldly proclaimed, I will never deny you. Others may fall away, but I won't deny you. Only to deny Christ three times before he was crucified. Um, it was Peter's rash actions that cut off the ear of the high priest servant when they came to arrest Christ. And um, so, so we see growth in Peter. We see the Lord making Peter um, more gracious and more humble. And we know that he's kind of getting older. This is an older Peter because he tells us in uh, at the end of the passage I read in verse 14, he says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And this kind of growth that we see in Peter's life throughout this, this passage, and as he's older, is an encouragement, and it's something we should also look to see in our own lives. You know, we should, like Peter, be able to look back five or ten years on this Christian walk and go, wow, I was really harsh with those people. I'm a lot more humble now with my patient. I was really arrogant in that Bible study. I, I'm a lot more slow to speak, you know. And I was, I was really rude to that guy in the street. I'm a lot more gracious uh, when dealing with the lost. Um, and, and, and so we, we get this, this kind of very gracious Peter. Um, also, Peter makes, makes a point to start this, this, this letter with his Jewish name, Cephas. Um, in, in, in First Peter and, and Second Peter, he's talking to Jewish converts. And he starts with Cephas. Matthew Henry gives us some insight that he starts with his name Cephas to, to show that he's not ashamed of his circumcision. He's not like trying to get away from his heritage. He's, he's embracing that yeah, he was Cephas, and that's, that's who he started off as. Um, we do see that Peter is his more commonly used name in the New Testament. It's his maybe preferred name. It's the name given to him from Christ, actually. Uh, in John 1.42, he first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So Simon is his um, Jewish name given to him on the eighth day after after his circumcision, you know, and his uh, name for Christ is Peter, or Cephas, which means Peter. 
And we see at the beginning of this letter, Peter brings his full identity, his Jewish heritage, and the name given to him by Christ. And he pairs it, and he brings it as a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ. So he brings his full identity, and he declares he's a servant of Christ. He says servant and apostle. Those two titles that he carries, of those two titles, the one title that he would boast in the most is the title servant, specifically servant of the Most High God, servant of Christ the Messiah. Because it is being a servant that brings him honor from the Father. Uh, you can look if you want in John 12, 26. Jesus' words, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Peter's apostleship isn't to be overlooked or to brought low, but he is first a servant of God. And he is serving as a messenger, as a sent one, as a herald of this good news, of this gospel. So you, you may be familiar with like movies or like historical films of, of the era you know, before technology, where the, the messenger of the king would show up and he'd blow a trumpet and he'd say, hear ye, hear ye, and then he would, he would say something, but whatever words came out of his mouth carried the weight of the king. The king isn't standing in the square making a declaration his herald is, his messenger is. So the guy screams, you know, the guy shouts, everybody listen, and he says, uh, you know, we're going to war, all able-bodied men report to this location at this time. And if you didn't do what this man said, you were then guilty of disobeying the king. Well, how can I be guilty of disobeying the king? It was, you know, Bob who said that. It's like, Bob spoke for the king, he brought that authority. You know, they, they can say, hear ye, hear ye, the taxes are being raised, and there's no excuses for not paying the new taxes. You heard it from Bob, and Bob was sent by the king. And that is the apostleship of, of the 12 apostles. They're messengers from Christ. They're bringing his message. They don't speak for themselves. That's why we see every letter these, um, these apostles really try and emphasize, I'm an apostle, not from man, but from Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I'm an apostle, which means you need to listen to what I'm saying. But my words don't come from me. They, they come from, from, from God. So that's where the authority comes from. We don't get the excuse of saying, well, God didn't tell me that. Peter told me that. God used Peter to tell you that. And to those who have heard the word, there is, there is no excuse for disobeying it. In the other half of verse 1, he says, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Being an apostle does not give Peter a unique level of authority. Sorry, being an apostle does give Peter a unique level of authority when he brings a message to a church, when he declares something. And when we're promised It, it does give him a level of authority in declaring something. And the 12 apostles were promised thrones in heaven to judge the, the tribes of Israel. Uh, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man is, will sit on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But this position in heaven, this special comments from Christ, does not give the apostles a different standard or special privileges on earth. That's why Peter makes it clear, you have a faith of equal standing with me. He, he puts himself, he says us, equal standing with us. He puts his salvation, his faith, in the same category as the believers he's writing this letter to. Apostles still have to work out their salvation in the same way everybody else does. So many leaders today, or throughout history, have used this, I'm the guy talking, I'm the one people look at as a way to gain followers or gain power or influence. You know, you can all think of famous leaders in history that were screaming about how we need to go to war and we need people to stand up and, and they riled people up and got people emotional. Or how many musicians, you know, stand in front of, of crowds and, and sing because they're the one that people are there to see. Uh, unfortunately, we even see this in churches that would call themselves Christian, where the guy in the pulpit is the one that says, you need to follow me and listen to me. He's the one that's selling books. He's the one that says, send me your money. You know, uh, Pay attention to me. I, I, I'm, I'm something special. You won't find that with any, any true Christian in a pulpit, any true Christian preaching the word. We are like Peter. We are servants of Christ. I don't want anybody to follow me. I'm here because I want people to follow my master. Servants don't try and find followers for themselves. Servants go find followers for their master. That's the job of a servant. So while, while Peter does make the distinction, I'm an apostle and I come with a degree of authority, before he even mentions that, he says, I'm a servant, which means I've got somebody over me and my life is dedicated to his glory and his following, not my own following. In verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As so many of the other apostles have mentioned in their letters, Peter's true desire with this letter, with this intent, is that grace and peace be multiplied in you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. He wants more grace from God the Father. He wants them to have more peace, more rest in their salvation. He tells us the means in which grace and peace is brought to us. You obtain more grace, more rest, more peace when you know more about God, when you have more knowledge of God. So that's what Peter's doing. He's writing them so that they will have more knowledge of God. He is seeking to bring peace to believers by bringing them knowledge. As we read the rest of this letter from Peter, he will be giving them not necessarily new revelation, but key points to focus on, to hold on to, that they may grow in grace and peace and knowledge. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. His own glory called us to his own glory and excellence. As believers, we know there's no doubt that we have to walk this race. We have to um, live our lives with fear and trying. We have to seek after God and in pursuit of righteousness. But what an encouragement to know that God's divine power, not man's effort, not our goodness, 
has already granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things means everything necessary for you to walk the rest of your days, whether you're going to live one more year or 91 more years. Everything necessary for you to continue in this faith as a godly Christian has been granted to you. And the way to access that information, the way to walk this life is found in the knowledge of him who called you. In the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, it is found in the knowledge of Christ, pursuing Christ through his word. Uh, in, in my trade, I work in the tech industry. There's multiple different ways you can grow if you want to grow in the tech industry. You can go the four-year university route, a lot of places offer associates, bachelors, masters, doctorates in, in computer sciences. You can do certification courses online. You can go to um, Google, uh, Coursera. There's a dozen different places that will give you a certification course. That'll help you grow in the tech industry. There are even plenty of people that have made a whole career of just the free resources online, whether it be YouTube or some of the free schools. And uh, the, the, these are so many different avenues. And it doesn't matter which one you pursue. You, you, you can grow in the tech industry. The, the uh, funny thing is there are even different ways to write the same program. So if you want to, I want a program that, you know, when I run it, it turns my lights on. There's multiple ways to do that. So the tech industry has multiple facets to grow in. But if you want to grow in all things that pertain to life and godliness, the only thing you pursue is Christ. And you find him in his word. You find him in times of prayer. You find him in encouraging conversations and interactions with your brethren. Not... You know, brother, I have a word from you for the Lord and false prophetic nonsense, but in honest conversations, just like the Bible tells us in Proverbs 27, 17, that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. So the Lord does use us to grow each other, but this comes from, again, an obedience to his word, not neglecting the fellowship of the saints, not from some man-centered teaching that, oh, you need to be here to hear what I have to say. No, we need to be around each other to be obedient to the word that he's already told us. And this is done to God's glory. This is all done for his glory. We are, again, we're servants. We're servants that when we do things, when we, when we preach or evangelize to the homeless or you know, give our coworkers a tract or, or even teach our children you know, Bible verses and songs and hymns, we're doing all of this work for God's glory. We're doing this so that he may be lifted up. But there are things in this world that are so mutually beneficial, they almost seem selfish to pursue. There are things in this world that both parties gain so much that no level of sacrifice really seems like sacrifice. I'll give you a couple of human examples. And my second example is not to be crass, I'm being very genuine. But I'll give my first example next Sunday as many of you know, my coworkers won't stop talking about it, is the Super Bowl, the big game. You know, one team's going to play another team, and there's going to be a concert in the middle. That's all I really think. But this is a pretty known time for people to really pull out the works with snacks and foods and, and making kind of their, their best dishes. You know, they're going to have Super Bowl parties, and you've got someone who's excited. I'm going to make my seven-layer bean dip. You've got some, some lady who's like, oh, my mac and cheese is going to come to the Super Bowl. So picture with me, if you will, one of these pitmasters, one of these guys that's got the $4,000 Traeger in his house, and 
and he's got all his buddies and his family coming over for the Super Bowl. And he goes, all right, I want to I make brisket for these guys. I want to make brisket. Now, we know this man's favorite food is brisket. But he's excited because his friends and family are coming over. So he's getting up at 5 a.m. on Sunday. He's going to uh, prep the meat. He's going to start the smoker. He's going to buy the right wood chips. He's going to put it in. He's going to check it every 45 minutes. You know, and when it comes out, he's going to slice it real thin. He's going to present it to his friends and his family. And you can make the argument. This guy's being selfish. His favorite food is brisket. Whether anybody shows up to this party or not, he gets what he wants, right? He gets to eat brisket. But you also see that he genuinely loves his friends and his family. And this labor of love in this serving is something that benefits them. So is it selfish? No, it's not selfish. But, but is it sacrifice? Yeah, it's sacrifice. But it's selfish sacrifice because he's gaining from it. Uh, my second example is it's found in the joys of marriage, you know, and in those intimate moments between husbands and wives where you truly get to enjoy each other as the Lord intended. You get to bring joy and closeness and love to the person you care the most about. And these are mutually beneficial times. Is that selfish? It can be. I'm sure the argument could be made, but that would be sinful. This is actually a way that you sacrifice to show love to your spouse. And in return, your spouse shows love to you. And you both benefit from it. Brother, that is our Christian life. That is our, our Christian walk. We sacrifice to bring glory to God. <clears throat> this is my first time preaching with my retainers and prison. <clears throat> we sacrifice so that God gets glory. We wake up and we pray and we read our Bible and we we evangelize and we uh, put off sin and we run this race so that God gets glory in our lives. Not just glory from our lives in, in the worship we bring him directly, but so much glory that the people around us worship God all the more because they see the change in our lives, because they see the genuineness and sincerity in our lives. But the problem with this, it's not a bad problem, it's a good problem, is that the more we sacrifice, the closer we get to God. The more of Him we get to enjoy. The more of His Spirit we get to fellowship with. So the more we sacrifice, the more we get to glory in God. So it's a selfish sacrifice. I give up X, Y, and Z so that I can draw myself closer to God and bring him more glory. But in doing so, I am now closer to God and get to glory in him more. I am now closer to the one I want to be in. And in being closer to him, he reveals more things for me to sacrifice and give up so that I can draw even closer to him. But in that, my joy is overfilled. Paul talks about this same thing in Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
we get more of Christ the more we sacrifice. Is it sacrifice? Yes, but it's sacrifice to our own benefit. And I'm not going to pass up this terrific opportunity to quote John Piper. So John Piper, famous for saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's when he gets the most glory, is when we have the most satisfaction. So, selfish sacrifice. Uh, moving to verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. In our last verse, verse 3, we were told that God has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. In this verse, we are being told that God has granted promises to us, and through them we are partakers of his divine nature. So I really want to camp out in these two verses for the rest of the message, for the rest of the time I have here. And the reason is I want to show you from Scripture and prove to you the truths in those two verses that God has granted everything to us. He, he has made promises to us. And those are for today, for our Christian life, for 2024, for us to hold on to. And brethren, what, what an overwhelming, almost blasphemous to think of your sinful state, who you really are, and think God is making me like him. Well, okay, I want to be like some of his characteristics. Well, God is patient. God is, is he's just. I can be like that. No, God wants you to come all the way into the fold. He wants you to be all the way like him. Holy and righteous and godly. Not in deity. This is this is a Mormonism where we don't get to the level of deity, but we get to the level of intimate fellowship with him. But we have his nature reflected on us, reflected on us. And we've been given promises that we get to hold on to. Promises like keep you like keep okay. So we're gonna I'm gonna kind of go through these rapid fire turn if you want, and if anybody doesn't, I'll, I'll send them to you with all this stuff afterwards. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. <clears throat> keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Didn't you hear the promise? He promises he will never leave you or forsake you. Or promises like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Promises like John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or promises like James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. How is it we are made godly by these promises? By faith in them, by holding them as to be true. We come to God knowing 
that all who come to him will be saved. We hold on to the promises of God even before our salvation because it is through these promises of God that we are saved. His word says, if I come to him, he will save me. I hold on to that promise. It is with faith you hold on to that promise, and it is by faith in Christ you are saved. Now that I'm saved, this is this is real conversations believers have internally, real real debates they need to answer. Now that I'm saved, and I live this, and I was living this sinful life, am I going to fall away because I can't handle temptation? Am I going to be put in a position where this life is just too much? No. You are promised. You will not be tempted to the point that you cannot withstand. God will not let the enemy bring too much to you. God will not save you and then abandon you. He will not let you be so weak that the enemy shows up more powerful than the spirit he placed in you. He will not allow you. He will not allow the enemy to overcome you with temptation that you just can't get away from. He will provide a way of escape. You can rest. You can have peace in knowing I always have an out. As a matter of fact, you can know that the Lord is always with you. He didn't save you and then send you out on your own to figure this Christian life out by yourself. He saves you and promises that he will be with you. He will never forsake you. That he is your helper. Because he is your helper, you don't have to fear what man can do to you. God is with you. Okay, well, I'm a new Christian, and I've got this Christian life. How am I, how am I to know how to, to walk? I'm going to make mistakes. I hear there's false teachers. I don't know what a good church is. How am I supposed to navigate this world if I don't have the ability to do that? You have a promise from Scripture that if you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you. He's promised to give you the wisdom necessary for this life, necessary to walk in the Christian life, on to godliness. He's provided everything if you ask. These are some of the promises he has given unto us so that we will become partakers of his divine nature, that we will become like him, that we will be associated with him. I want to take just a moment and look at the word partaker. Because you might think it's a kind of flippant word. It's like a half in, half out. Oh, I am partake. No. Going back to my Webster's 1828, partaker says one who has or takes part, share or portion in common with others, a sharer, a participator. Our partaker is not someone who is casual, is not someone who kind of every once in a while participates. No, a partaker is someone who is a participant, who takes part of and has a portion in common with others. God wants you to participate in his nature. He wants you to be in common with his nature. He wants you to share in the portion of his nature, not in his deity, but in his holiness. He wants you to be godly in character. This is a promise that he left for us, that he will lead us in being more like him. This is why we have an escape this is why we have escaped the corruption of the world. We no longer live for sinful desires. We no longer live for temporary sinful pleasures. 
of this world, of the temporary sinful pleasures of this world that do not bring life. These temporary sinful temptations that are meant to draw us away from God. We don't live for them because we don't see the value in them anymore. We don't live for them because we know they're not real. We're still tempted by them, but again, we're promised that we won't be tempted beyond what we can handle. Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel talks about the, the value of sin and how it's not valuable. In Mark 8, 34. And calling to the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? <coughs> Believer, I want you to keep in mind that you have escaped the corruption of this world. You have escaped its hold on you. You're still distracted by shiny things. I know, so am I. But you don't, it's not holding on to you anymore. It is no longer your master. I hear too many professing Christians using the excuse, oh, I was in the flesh. They, you know, husbands are short with their wives or are mean to their co-workers or, you know, cheat on their taxes. And I, I was just in the flesh in that moment. I kind of try and hide it. I was in the flesh. You know, women disrespect their husbands or, or, or they go gossip with their neighbors or, or wh whatever it is. And I, yeah, I was just, I was in the flesh. Shouldn't have done it. Not, you know, they try and make light of their sin. But what the Lord has told you and is telling you is that you're not in the flesh anymore. That's not an excuse for the Christian. And I've made it very clear that God will not let you be tempted where you can't. Not let you be tempted where you can't walk away. Where you, where you don't have the ability to overcome it. So the reason that Christians are tempted, and the reason that Christians fall, and Christians do fall, this is not a, I don't know, theology term, perfection, what is it? You do fall, you do sin. Or to quote John, if you fall, if you sin. So why do Christians sin? Why do Christians fall? Why do they, why do they put themselves in this? We have so many promises from God, and he promises he's with us. Why do we still sin? We sin because we choose to. And that's not something everybody wants to openly admit. But a Christian sins because he chooses to. He either willingly chooses in the moment, or he chose in the moments leading up to it to not do what he was supposed to do. So you choose to do the wrong thing in the moment. God cuts you off in traffic, you make the choice. Respond in anger and hate, or respond in love, as the Bible would have you do. You make that choice. But leading up to those moments, you're too weak and you're not prepared. We're not told to live like that. We're told to take these opportunities and prepare ourselves. We're in an active battle here. Peter tells us the chapter before in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Men don't walk the Sahara with their head in the clouds. They pay attention, they prepare. I'm going into enemy territory. Brothers and sisters, we live in enemy territory. 
If you don't prepare, you will fall. And to this point, to this not preparing point, what, what, what can Christians really do if they don't prepare, if they don't set themselves up, not a, not a, a quick, spontaneous sin in the moment type thing, but if they don't set themselves up, what, what's that cascade look to? Scripture, again, provides everything we need. I want to look at two different accounts from the same man's life. The man is King David. The man after God's own heart, a friend of God. At first, I would look to, like to look at David when he wasn't prepared. And I want you to see what can happen to a valley man who doesn't prepare and doesn't put himself in the right situation. You can turn to 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the, in the, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Our text tells us clearly this is springtime. And what is supposed to happen at springtime? What time of year is it? Kings are supposed to go out to battle. Whether you're a conqueror trying to find new territory or you're a defender trying to keep your territory, this is the time kings go out to battle. Kings are supposed to be there leading their armies. They're supposed to be there with their people. They have been told. We, we, we have been told from Scripture that's what is supposed to happen. That's the time. But we're told, but David remained in Jerusalem. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He, he didn't go to battle. He stayed in Jerusalem. That decision to stay, that was the willing sin. That was that first willing sin. So what was the result of the willingness to sin? We've read the story. I'm not going to read the entire story, but we know what was the result. And there's no way David thought, oh, I want to go to battle. I want to go out with the kings. I'm just going to stay here. That's going to cause, it's going to cause me to commit adultery. It's going to cause me to lie. It's going to cause me to do some murder, more lying. He didn't think in his moment to not do what he was supposed to do, that the repercussions of that would be so much sin, so much separation between him and the Lord, so much agony that he had to endure, that those around him had to endure. He didn't think of this one simple decision. I'm not going to go with my army. I'm going to stay home. Would then be the beginning of a cascade of weaknesses that he wasn't able to stand for. A quote I've often heard from my father growing up, and I don't know if it was his quote or if he heard it from somebody and shared it with me, is that sin will always cost you more than you were willing to pay and take you farther than you were willing to go. But one of the great joys in reading the Bible and in this encouragement that it, it is everything you need for holiness, for godliness, for your life, is that these are real stories. I know we have parables, and I love the parables, but the Bible is not a book of parables and moral stories. The Bible is a book of lives, real human lives. The Bible is a book of lives 
and, and the ups and downs and high points and low points in these lives. And we get to see these people's journey all the way to the end. And some of these people's journeys is so many spikes and valleys that when we read about them in the Heroes of the Faith chapter, Heroes 11, we're a little surprised to hear some of those names the first time we read them. And that's, that's one of the blessings in, in getting to see Old Testament stories is you get the whole picture of someone's life. So as we saw David where he wasn't where he should be, where he fell, I'm going to share with you something that's recorded in Scripture from David when he was where he was supposed to be. You can turn with me if you would like. It's going to be Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to the taste my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth through your precepts I gain understanding therefore I hate every false way and that's Psalm 119 97 through 104 for Christian in your life have you read these words have you like David com com confessed in prayer or felt joy that the word of the Lord is sweeter than honey and you find yourself looking back at these amazing times of fellowship and intimacy with the Lord, and you think, wow, like, I couldn't get any closer. You know, my, my prayer time, I thought it was 15 minutes. It was 52 minutes. You know, this, this verse, I read 10 verses, and I got 10 pages worth of information out of it. I've had such wonderful times of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. Like, like these are the highs, right? These are your Psalm 119 moments with the Lord. But like David... Do you sometimes look back on those after you've sinned and think, how could I have done that? And we're tempted. There's so much temptation for Christians. We're tempted even in our sin. Oh, I've blown it. I've sinned in some grievous way. You know, sin's a very broad term. It has like one definition. It's you know, doing something in act, word, or deed that's against God. But for all of us, it may mean something very different. You know, there's probably five sins or so that we can all agree that we struggle with. You know, you know patience, anger, something. But I bet every one of you have been to your top three. The top three that you've shared, you know, with brethren, you've kind of confessed them, but those are the ones you really got to keep an eye out for. Those are the, those are the doors you got to keep shut all the time. Because, man, they're, they're rough. And you've fallen them over and over and over again. And as Christians, sometimes we can get tempted in the midst of our sin when we just, we, the, the guilt and shame is in full weight on us. That's it. I'm, I'm probably not a Christian. I'm probably not a real believer. A Christian wouldn't be able to have these wonderful times with the Lord and then these, these horrible seasons of sin and darkness. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I, I must be just lying to myself. I must be lying to everybody. This is, this just, I'm probably just not saved. That is very serious. 
internal conversation, internal dialogue to have. But for those having that, for those struggling with that, the reality is it's probably only true for maybe 1% of those that profess Christ and have that internal struggle, that internal monologue. It's probably only really a true statement for very few people that find themselves in that deep pit. And some of you may go, wait, how can it be true for like such a small number of people? You know, there's many false people out there. Churches are filled with false converts. America's like, what, 70% Christian? Now, I'm not talking about just everybody that professes. I'm talking about this internal monologue of how can I have this time with the Lord and sin? And the reason I can say that is lost people don't have that internal monologue. Lost people don't think that way. See, lost people mourn and cry not over their sin, but over the consequences of their sin, the shame that their sin brings, the embarrassment that their sin brings. Lost people don't sit there troubled and deeply stirred in their spirit because, oh, I've sinned against the God I love. No, they're troubled because the circle they're in, the moral church circle they're in, won't let them serve the God they really want to serve. Lost people don't care that they sin. They care that they get caught. And whether your sin is something gross like adultery or, or murder or, or you know other things that shouldn't be mentioned, or it's something like pride or, or looking good in front of people or, or having a nice image or arrogance, lost people are sad that their sin is, is uncovered or that they can't pursue it to the fullness. I've talked to people that have walked away from the faith, genuine unbelievers, and they talk about the freedom they feel when they finally remove the burden coat of Christianity and get to go do whatever they want to do. I had someone very close to me that thankfully he is walking with the Lord now, but when he walked away, he talked about the weight of the church and of Christianity falling off his shoulders and the lightness and freedom he finally got to feel when he went into his sin fully. That burden they're feeling is not their sin. The burden they're feeling is the morality and Christianity, and that's what grieves them. I said there's maybe 1% of people that find themselves in this genuine, oh, I, I'm sinning, which is grieving the Lord. Those are the ones the Lord's using that moment to save. Those are the people that the Lord's opening their eyes to their own state, and he's telling them, look, you are not saved. It's the Spirit bringing that conviction. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that state? I have sinned. I have whatever your top three are, your top one that you really don't tell anybody about. And you find yourself in that state with the smell of sin still on you. Well, thankfully, we were told that the Bible gives us all things necessary for our life as a Christian. So again, I will turn to David. In Psalm 51. If you'd like to turn there and read along, I'm going to go through the whole psalm. David, after he sinned all of these horrible sins, after he fell as low as you can, where people on the outside would say, not a believer, definitely not a Christian, evidence of falling away. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in inward and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a wealth with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, for I will give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then will you delight in right sacrifice, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This, believers, is an example, is, is the example we're reading about in Peter, verse 2, 2 Peter, verse 2, 1, verse 3. That the divine power, God's divine power, <clears throat> has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, the Lord has not just given us a manual to memorize, marching orders to follow, He's given us lives to see. He's given us believers to follow. He's even provided an example of how the believer is to behave after he sins. It is not only the divine power of God that it is, or it is only the divine power of God that could orchestrate lives and kingdoms and nations over centuries and continents and languages. Have everything fall perfectly into place. No uh, corruption. No inconsistencies. And preserve it through thousands of years over multiple translations. And deliver it to believers in 2024. So that a believer in 2024 can open his Bible and have everything he needs for this Christian life. David petitions the Lord. He starts by, by pleading with the Lord. He knows he's dirty. He asks for mercy because he knows God is merciful. And that's what he needs in this sinful state. Believers flee from the temptation that you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. That you need to put away all of your sinful paraphernalia before you then walk to the Lord. If you feel the conviction of the Spirit, stop in the moment. Let Him be the one to clean you. Let him be the one to restore a right spirit in you in the moment. You don't take a day off. We don't put ourselves in the penalty box. This isn't Christian hockey. The moment we sin, we can turn to the Lord. 
He saved us in our sin. He will restore us in our sin. We don't outstand his grace. He did not see this coming. David is feeling the distance between him and the Lord, so much so that he refers to it as the bones you have broken. That's the degree of pain and agony his soul is in because he knows there's something between my God and me. It's this sin. It needs to be dealt with. But I don't have clean hands anymore. I can't deal with it. Lord, be merciful to me. And we hear from David his plea, don't blot me out. Don't cast me away. Don't take your spirit from me. Remember, the reason David is king is because Saul isn't. The reason David is king is because he's the anointed one. Is because he watched someone sin against God to a degree where God took his spirit away from him, where he removed the anointing. Turn, if you will, to 1 Saul 16, starting in verse 13. Then Samuel, or 1 Samuel, sorry, not Saul, 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Rome. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubled thee. Brother, we pray like this. We pray like David, not because we are worried the Lord will remove his spirit from us, but we don't want to be found as someone who is fooling even ourselves. We are able to genuinely fool ourselves into thinking we're saved, into living a lie, but we don't want to be led on to that. And not only that, but we have watched people fall away. We've seen leaders fall away. If I asked every one of you, you can tell me of a brother that you used to go evangelizing with. He used to have wonderful conversations. I can think of several back home in Corpus where I used to attend church. They'd call me at 3 in the morning. Hey, I know you're up. I saw you on Facebook. I got this really amazing question about something in the Bible. We have wonderful fellowship conversations. This isn't the David trying to bribe the Lord. This isn't the, the good works argument. Okay, Lord, if you take me back this time, I promise I'll go do this thing. God wants all of your service all of the time. He wants 100% of you. We don't part-time serve the Lord. There's nothing extra you're going to offer to give him. You're supposed to have given him everything from day one. So there's no, okay, Lord, if you, if you, if you, if you save me this time, I'm going to go to the mission field. That should have been on the table before you sinned. It, it's, he's, he's saying, I know what I will do, and I know who I will become if you restore this spirit in me. My lips will open, I will sing your praise, I will have fellowship with you, and I will teach people. I will teach the, the foolish your ways. I will teach them your precepts. I mean, David even specifies, you wouldn't delight in burnt offerings. You wouldn't delight in the blood of gold, bulls, and rams. Nothing I can bring you. It's only after you restore that then I can bring you sacrifices. It's only after you restore me that I will be able to bring you. I have nothing to bring you. So this isn't a, a, a bargaining chip on David. This is what it is supposed to be of, of what we should model. This is Psalm 51, which means the Lord did answer this petition. He did restore David. And David did exactly what he said. He wrote Psalm 119, and that is used to teach the foolish wisdom. We have the ability to walk this Christian life. We've been given the promises necessary to do it. We have been given the tools necessary to do it. 